John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. My name is Trailhead Church. Um, that was a short verse. I'll explain why we just read that one in a moment. Next week, I want to remind you, we are going to three services. So the service ch- times are changing next week. So that means some of you are going to have to set your alarm earlier. Some of you can praise God, you get to sleep in a little later, okay? We, we are doing 8 o'clock for those of you who um, like to get up in the morning. We're doing 9.30, um, which is probably going to be our most popular time with, with vid- visitors and newcomers. Then we have the 11.15 for those of you who have a hard time getting up by the crack of noon. Um, but w- join us next week. Um, our, our members and regular attenders have, have um, kind of committed to one of those services until we get our rhythms going to make sure that we have an equal distribution of people across the services. Thank you for doing that. And um, I want to encourage you <clears throat> to invite your friends. Next week, we are actually kicking off a new sermon series um, that we're calling uh, Fighting for Freedom. We're going to be going through the book of Galatians, a letter in the New Testament. It's a fairly short letter, but man, it, is, it carries a punch um, here's the thing, this book is really about the fact that there are things in life worth fighting for, and that in fact we are going to have to fight if we're going to genuinely experience them. The story tells us about a God who is fighting, not against us, not to get us to perform or to measure up, but who is fighting for us. Um, it's, a, it's a gospel fight for our freedom, a good news fight that we will experience um, powerfully and in a real way the freedom and the joy that God Um, wants for us. And He's calling us to fight with Him, not against Him, but with Him for good in our life, to experience more joy, more freedom, um, and more of of what uh, Christ has won for us. And in this series, we're going to be tackling some big questions, things like, who who is Jesus and and what did He do? What is this thing that we call the gospel and why does it even matter? And so I'm going to encourage you to to join us for this series. I guarantee you'll be blessed. I guarantee there'll be things in this that will um, speak powerfully to you. It is also a great opportunity to invite your friends and neighbors. When you came in, um, everybody was given two postcards that are basically promo postcards for this series. There's one for you to hang on your refrigerator and one for you to give to a friend or a neighbor so that they um, can be informed and invited to, to join us. If you have more than one friend, feel free to give them both away. We have more of these. Uh, you can get them at Connection Point. In fact, as many as you want. Um, the reality is, is that most people who aren't familiar with church, um, come for the first time because of a personal invitation. It is that simple word that says, hey, there's something cool going on. Um, You want to check it out with me. I mean, it's that simple. And for a lot of people, that takes away the threat of something alien and different, right? Stepping into something new is always challenging. And so a personal invitation goes a long, long way to actually helping people um, come. And I guarantee that they'll be blessed, you'll be blessed. So I encourage you um, to think about who you can invite uh, as, we, as we dig into this new series. All right, today we're closing out our, our sermon series called Invitation to Grace. And this morning we're going to talk about a, a hard topic, a difficult topic. We're going to um, talk about how God calls to us in grace in our sorrow. So we're going to be talking about some hard things this morning and looking at some realities of life that often are difficult to, to look at. We read as our, as our intro the shortest verse in the Bible, uh, Jesus wept. It's all of two words, but it is profound in its meaning. What we see happening in this verse is profoundly moving and insightful. 
When we read the Gospels, and by the Gospels I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the three books that give us the story of Jesus' life, we get a rich and detailed history of His ministry. We don't get a super great look into His private life, into His personal life. The, the writers were not writing so that we would get a complete picture of everything He said and everyone He knew, but you get glimpses into His private life. And one of the things that you pick up on is that He had a circle of friends, people that He loved and, and people that loved Him. And among that close circle of friends were um, these two sisters and a brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Every time he traveled through this part of the world, he would stay in their home and he would enjoy um, hanging out with them. And we don't know all the details. What we do know is that the context of our verse, Jesus comes to visit and Lazarus has died. As he shows up, um, Mary stays in the home mourning and weeping and Martha um, when she hears that Jesus is, is, is walking toward the home, um, can't contain herself. She gets up and she, she runs out of the house and she runs down the, uh, the walkway um, to meet Jesus on the path. And when she gets to Him, she is just broken in tears, in sorrow. And she looks at Him without, without reproach, just simply stating, if you had been here, you could have stopped this. And in that statement is a whole world of questions. Why did you allow this to happen? Where were you? How are you going to meet me in my sorrow? And Jesus did something profound. He wept. He didn't explain himself. He didn't reproach her for her lack of faith. He didn't intellectualize it and say, well, you just don't understand the future. If you understood the future, you wouldn't be crying right now. He met her in her place of pain. Jesus wept. The text, in fact, says that He was deeply moved. He wasn't just putting on an act. He wasn't just saying, well, this is the appropriate human thing to do, right? Sometimes we over-spiritualize Jesus and forget the fact that He was a man. And when we over-spiritualize Him, we're like, well, He knew He was going to raise Lazarus, so clearly He couldn't have been sad. Uh, we need to take the text at its word. His friend had died, and He was deeply moved. It hurt, and He cried. The Son of God who came that death might be conquered, the source of life, the one through whom everything that was made was made, the source of all that is delightful and joyful and powerful and triumphant, the one who would go to the cross and die and rise again that he might defeat death, wept in heartfelt sadness for the loss of his friend. Jesus understood sorrow. Jesus understood pain. This summer, um, this last summer, one of my close friends was visited by death. It was in June, and I was out in California. Lauren and I were at a, um, a meeting out there, um, and I got a, a call from Brian, who is our worship leader. You see him almost every Sunday up here. Um, Brian was broken and in tears because something had gone horribly wrong with Melinda's pregnancy. And as he shared just broken, he, he, he let me know. The doctor was very clear that they would lose the baby. 
Worse than that, because of the position of the placenta, Melinda's life was in danger. If things didn't change, she could die. And so he was just weeping on the phone with me. And I wept with him, and we both prayed and ran to God for grace in that moment. Now, they can tell their story way better than I can. We've actually asked them to share their story, so we've captured a video of them uh, simply sharing their story. So I want to share that with you now. I'm Melinda. And I'm Brian. About a year ago, um, in October, we found out we were pregnant. Um, and we're really excited and um, really had no no concept of anything um, ever going wrong. They did the ultrasound, couldn't find a heartbeat, and basically said, your child has stopped growing after nine weeks. And so, fast forward to February, we get pregnant again. Well, in June, it was a Tuesday, and um, same kind of symptoms. We figured, okay, I guess it's happening again. Went to the doctor. He basically said, sorry, but you are going to lose your child. To make matters worse, that night, um, our doctor comes in, kind of a mess, and he's basically like, this is terrible. He's like, but you're in a bad spot. He's like, your placenta is covering your cervix, which means you can't give birth naturally. You could go into labor at any moment, and if you do, um, it could rupture your placenta, which at 20 weeks is still very strong, and that could cause significant blood loss, potentially jeopardize Melinda's life. And then he left, and that was Tuesday night. We sat in that reality of losing our child and having to make a decision of, how do I save my wife? But I just I remember thinking, okay, I'm out of my league, and I can't figure this out. And, uh, and just started praying, God save save Melinda, save our child. And by Friday morning when he came in, Melinda was already in um, labor. So we were able to deliver Daniel on Friday, June 28th, naturally, we didn't have to have any surgery. And he came and, you know, he was born alive. And then, we, and then we had to bury him. Just even telling that story, even looking at how God saved Melinda through that, the, the news we had on Tuesday to the reality of what Friday was, I think is a tremendous grace. And we prayed and God answered, but he, uh, he didn't, at least in this life, give us our son. He took him. If, if things had gone the way I wanted them to in life, it would look very different, but it wouldn't be good. And I would share my story and it would be about me. It would be about me and my successes and my accomplishments and how well I've, you know, things have worked out for me. And God just hasn't allowed room for that, you know. Like when I tell my story now, it's about Him and it's about His glory and about what He's done. God's not good because He has spared me. He's not good because He allowed Daniel to be born alive. That's not why God's good. We always want to put a little clause at the end of God's good because, you know, and so it's just like learning God's good. 
He's good because he says he's good. He's good because he saved us <laughs> um, when he didn't have to. I mean, death was conquered, and I see that now. I understand that, and it makes all of the difference because <laughs> I know that Daniel's worshiping Jesus face-to-face -face with him right now, and we get to do that with Daniel, with Jesus, all together someday. And when Brian's, like, worshiping up front in church, <laughs> that's overwhelming now of just, we'll worship as a family again. Some of you are uh, cursing my name right now because we didn't put tissues out at the end of the, uh, the aisles. I apologize for that. Um, I don't think I can watch that without crying. Um, here's the deal, you guys. This just happened this last summer, and, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of sensitivity coaching. Um, with these guys and with others that have gone through suffering, um, we want to love these guys. We want to pray for them. Um, but we don't want to line up to talk to them about their loss. Often those who suffer loss have to put their grieving aside for a period of time in order to comfort others who are grieving with them. They have to lead others in their grief. And then that season passes, and they get down to kind of the, the deep heart work of healing themselves, and that requires some space. And so while they're short sharing their story publicly, their sorrow is still very personal and very real and very fresh. So let's not make that the center of our interactions with them. If you want to say something, um, feel free to say thank you for sharing your story. But um, just kind of let them just be them. I know as well that the Pachecos aren't the only ones who have suffered painful losses in the last year or in the recent history. Um, I have, over the last year, wept with a number of families who are processing loss, um, the loss of children, the loss of friends. Um, and uh, I want to let you know that, that as a result, actually, this last year, we've made a resource available in our book center, our resource center. Um, if you've lost a child, it's called Safe in the Arms of God, and we want that to be available to you. In fact, we have, um, if you've lost a child, a gift that we'd like to give you, feel free to visit Connection Point. If you don't want to make yourself known, just grab the book and run. That's fine. Um, it won't bother me. We just want to come alongside you and love you and uh, encourage you. So we're left with some questions. Where is God when we face death? Where is grace when we are neck deep in sorrow? The reality is he's right where he was with Martha and Mary. He is there weeping with us, and He is there working for us. Now, to give you a context for our suffering, we need to take a glimpse back at the beginning of our story, the beginning of the human story. When we're talking about human suffering, there are no simple answers, because human suffering, when you talk about it in a big context, um, the reality is there is no indifferent human suffering, because it's always personal. When we talk about suffering, we talk about personal pain, my pain, my loss, and there are never simple answers for personal pain. But while there are no simple answers, I believe the Bible does give us an effective framework to understand why suffering exists in the world, why there is pain, and that framework does help us understand where God is in the process. When we look at the beginning of our story, we find that a great tragedy occurred at the beginning of human history. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve woke up every morning full of joy full of purpose, full of a deep and lasting sense of love and absolutely secure in life. But when our first parents rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, they introduced death into the world. 
God had told them, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Now, they didn't die physically that day, but they did die spiritually, and spiritual death led eventually to physical death. See, death is not the cessation of being. Death is separation from life. Two different things. In the day that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they died spiritually. They were separated from an intimate relationship with God, the source of life. They were separated from the love of God and the outpouring of the life of God because they had rebelled against God. And God is holy, and they had become unholy. And their spiritual separation eventually led to a physical separation. When their bodies died, they didn't cease to exist. It was simply a separation of the soul from the body. The center of our lives used to be life and light and joy. That's what we were created for. We were created to be deeply rooted in the infinite love of God and the absolute life and joy of God. Now, at the core of the human condition is a deep sorrow, a dark separation from life. We live in the light of day, but we all know that sunset is coming. We know how our stories end. We've seen it before, and we know where it goes. Death is never far from the living, and even our joy is tainted by sadness as a result. Death and all of his ugly cousins accompany us on a daily basis. Separation, loneliness, betrayal, disassociation, shame. See, Jesus came to undo what our first parents did. He came to perform the great reversal by dying for us that we might live in Him. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. He was our substitute in judgment so that we could be invited to the table of grace, that we might be forgiven and made alive in Him. He came to solve our first and primary problem that we have been separated from life Himself, the person of God. He came to deliver us from spiritual death back into life. See, when we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven and we are made alive because God dwells with us. The guilt of our sin is removed and we are invited back into deep, real relationship with God. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Anything we can produce, anything we can do, the result is the same as that of our first parents, separation, because our best efforts are still tainted by our sin. We cannot do anything purely for the glory of God any longer because we are bent toward our own glory. We are bent to building our own kingdoms in opposition to God. The wages of our behavior, the wages of our best efforts is death, separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, because He performed where we failed. 
because he obeyed where we disobeyed, and he died for us in our place and rose again. He gives us the free gift of eternal life. See, our performance merits judgment, separation from a holy God. Jesus' performance on our behalf makes available to us the free gift of forgiveness, life. And it's called eternal life for a reason. See, we're not just talking about a length of time. Everybody was created to exist eternally. That's part of what it means for us to be created in the image of God. Scripture indicates that we all exist forever, but existing forever is not the same thing as being alive. Jesus came to give us eternal life. It's not talking about a quantity of time. It's talking about a quality of existence, that we might be once again reunited with life Himself, that we might once again be rooted in the very life and love and joy and power of God. Eternal life is not just a length of time, but a quality. Life as it was designed to be. It's an invitation to once again be alive. In this season, though, we live in the already not yet tension of redemptive history. And what that means is that our victory is already won. Christ has already been raised from the dead. Our future is already secure, but we are not yet fully delivered into the freedom of what He's done. We're tasting it progressively. We have been redeemed and we are being restored. But that restoration is a process. It is not yet fully experienced. And what that means is that during this season, we will continue to suffer loss. We will continue to hurt. And we will have to process sorrow. So I want to give you three ways this morning how grace meets us in our sorrow, how it meets us in that place of pain in profound and powerful ways. If we will simply run to Jesus with our sorrow, like Martha down the trail, just coming to Him honestly and who we are to meet Him. First, God will meet us in our sorrow, and I simply want to leave that as it is. He will meet us in our sorrow. Martha ran to Jesus, and He wept with her. He didn't lecture her. He didn't over-intellectualize. He didn't try to give her some theological framework to explain away her pain. He sat with her, and He wept with her. Sometimes the deepest comfort for our pain doesn't come from the right words. It comes from the right person, a person who will love us enough to stay silent but sit with us in our pain, somebody who understands and can echo back the depth of what we're going through. That's what Jesus did with Martha. He met her at that place of suffering, and He simply wept with her. He met her in her pain and He shared, her, shared it and, and He loved her. And that love made her pain more tolerable. See, grace is the only thing that can really give you rest in suffering. See, sorrow can be like a heavy weight or, or like a headwind. It makes everything harder. It's like walking into a hurricane gale force, right? Every step takes monumental effort. When your heart is broken, getting up in the morning can take every ounce of energy and strength you have. 
when you are racked with sorrow, simply moving through the day, taking a step, having a conversation, doing the things you need to do can be exhausting. Running to Jesus will help lighten that load. Matthew 11, verses 28 and through 30 says this, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at what the invitation is. Look to me, all who, are, who labor, who are working so incredibly hard because life is difficult. Come to me, everybody who is walking into that gale force wind. Every effort takes so much energy, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Look at how he describes himself. What an incredible, gentle and lowly in heart. We're not coming to uh, a distant, angry, vengeful God. We're coming to a God who knows what it is to be a man of clay, weak and frail, vulnerable and hurting. We're coming to a God who looks at us eye to eye because He relates with our pain and He understands our condition. We are coming to a God who can meet us in our pain because He has stepped into our pain. He has walked in our pain and He can give us comfort in our pain. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sadness has a way of pulling us out of community. Sorrow will pull us out of community with God and out of community with others, and it isolates us. And as it isolates us, the burden becomes greater. The resistance becomes more difficult. The pain increases. The invitation of grace, the invitation of love is an invitation into community. And we see that clearly because Jesus uses the metaphor of the yoke Now, the yoke was something that his original hearers would have fully understood. Uh, We're not quite as familiar uh, in our culture with his idea of yoking. Um, But a yoke was a device that would take um, two oxen and harness them together because they could do more together. Now, generally, you wanted to pair equally sized and equally strengthed oxen because if one was stronger than the other, it would pull out of direction, it would not be equally distributed. And so a strong oxen would only be paired with a strong oxen. The irony of Jesus' illustration is that He's talking about yoking His strength with our weakness. Jesus says, let me yoke myself to you, and I will carry you. I am strong enough for your weakness. My love will meet you in your sorrow. See, what he's offering is relationship, community, an experience of love. See, nothing lightens the soul like love. Nothing meets us in our pain and our sorrow like love. And that's why it's important for us as followers of Christ to renew our awareness daily of God's love for us. As believers, when we're going through times of hardship, we need to renew our awareness of God's love for us because as we meditate on it, as we enter into it, as we come to the table of grace, we are changed by it. 
And that means that we need to exercise good, healthy, spiritual disciplines. We, we need to be opening our Bibles and reading them to meet the God of the Bible, to learn more about Him and more about ourselves, to be opening it so that the Spirit of God can use it to, to change us and to meet us in it, right? We're not talking about legalistically opening it up and you better put in your time. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about meeting Him and knowing Him and relating to Him. We need to be serving we need to be experiencing community with God, and we need to be experiencing community with His body. So here's the thing, is as we renew our awareness of God's love for us, um, both, both by word and in community with other believers, we experience that love, because love is always shared in community. An essential part of experiencing community with God is experiencing community in His body with other believers. If we're not in community with other believers in Christ, we are in fact cutting off a necessary, essential part of experiencing the love of God. See, we're not just talking about being around Christians. We're not just talking about being, being around people, rubbing shoulders with people who, who are followers of Christ. We're talking about doing life with people, knowing and being known. We're talking about moving to a place where you have the courage to be honest and vulnerable, and emotionally mature enough to invite others into your pain. Emotionally mature enough not just to show up to say, I'm here to meet you in your pain, I'm here to serve you, but actually having the maturity and the strength to be able to say, I hurt, and I need you to meet me where I hurt. And Jesus will work through the love of others to share with you His love. That's why we're called His body, because as His body, we minister to each other in the name and in the strength of Christ. So grace will give us rest. It will also renew our hope. See, grace gives rest, but it also gives hope. When you're weighed down with sorrow, hope can feel very far away. When you sit down at the table of grace, when you renew your vision of who God is and what He's done for you, it renews your hope because it lifts your vision from your suffering to your Savior. It changes your focus from what is to what will be. It doesn't minimize or negate your pain, but it does remind you that that's not all there is. In fact, it's not the be- even the best of what there is. The best things in life are really just a foretaste of what will be. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14 say this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. This is the way the early Christians talked about death, this, this metaphor of sleep. And it wasn't because they were ignorant of the reality. They understood that when a person dies, their body goes into the ground and it decays. They understood death, but they also understood death in the broader context of the work of Christ, that death was not permanent, that it was simply the separation of the soul from the body, and that that was not the end of the story. And so they said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died ahead of you, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. See, it changes the way we grieve. It doesn't, notice it doesn't say so that you may not grieve. It doesn't take us to a place where we don't hurt and we don't grieve. 
but it changes the way we grieve. We grieve as those who have a hope that goes beyond this life. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. This life is not the end of the story. See, Brian and Melinda, at the end of that video where they're talking about one future day where they will get to worship God together with their son, they're not just waxing poetic. They are, in fact, simply trusting that what God has said is true. They are simply speaking from a gospel-informed hope. Jesus rose from the dead, and that changes everything. It means that death is not the final word, and our sorrow is not the end of the story. So grace gives us rest, grace renews our hope, and grace will awaken within us a renewed capacity for joy. When we're filled with sorrow, not only does hope feel distant, but joy feels impossible. Sometimes joy seems to be the opposite emotional experience of sorrow, that when we are filled with sorrow, we are incapable of also experiencing joy. Some would even reject joy as if joy were somehow dishonoring the sorrow. They feel a need to reject joy. Here's the thing, I want you to catch this, you guys. Joy is not the opposite of sorrow. Joy is the opposite of despair. The enemy would love to use the darkness of our sorrow to enslave us, to lock us away in a prison of our pain forever. See, he wants to turn our sorrow into despair. When we come to the table of grace, God meets us in our sorrow and renews our capacity for joy even as we grieve. It doesn't diminish our sorrow. It doesn't minimize our pain. But it keeps us from being entombed in it. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, at the very end of the Bible. We took a look and talked about Genesis 1 through 3, the beginning of the story. Revelation 21, in the final chapters of the Bible, gives us a glimpse of the end of the story, and it says this, He will wipe away every tear, from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He is restoring, and one day it will all be restored. When we sit at the table of grace, God reminds us that we are not defined by the sorrow of this age, the loss of this age, the pain that is associated with our lives now. Our loss and our sorrow are not the final word. We still suffer the consequences of Genesis 3, the rebellion of our first parents and our own rebellion. We still suffer death and all of the negative things come with it. But we eagerly anticipate the joy of Revelation 21. We eagerly anticipate the restoration of all things when God will set all things right and make all things new. We're marked by the beginning of our story. But we have a hero. We have 
a Savior who is making all things new. And as we fill our vision with Him, it will increase our capacity for joy, even in our pain, because we are loved. And because of His work, we are safe. Today we're going to um, get to you celebrate uh, this gospel, this message, in, in, a, in a powerful way. As we wrap up and we move into our time of response, I want to let you know that we will be having a baptism service this afternoon after, um, after our service, 1230. I'm going to encourage all of you to stick around and celebrate with us. Baptism really is a celebration. It's a celebration of who Christ is and what He's done. It's a celebration of those who have placed their faith in that finished work. When we look at baptism, what we see is in symbolic form, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? You take somebody and you, you dip them in the water. Yeah. Imagine, you know, if I just hold them there for a while. What does that symbolize? Don't worry, I don't actually do this. Some of you are like, man, you're brutal. Uh, yeah, no, I won't actually, but it symbolizes death, right? When you go under the water, it symbolizes death. When you come back up out of the water, it symbolizes a birth into new life a birth into a new identity, a birth into your new name in Christ, your new future, your new hope. Baptism is a celebration of the work of Christ. It is a celebration of an individual's faith in Christ. And so it's a celebration. It doesn't do anything in the sense of earning, right? Christ earned it all. It doesn't do anything for church membership. It has nothing to do with that. It is simply the act of someone who has believed in Jesus, who wants to honor Jesus by following Jesus obediently into baptism. Jesus is the one who said that we should do it, right? Go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first act of obedience of a new believer is supposed to be baptism. So I have a unique invitation for some of you this morning. If you have believed in Jesus... If you are a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, you have not been dunked, I'm going to invite you to join us by being baptized this morning. Like, for real, right? You came dry, you're going to go home wet, okay? Don't worry, we have you covered. We have clothes. We even have underwear, right? We got you covered. Um, Getting baptized here doesn't mean you have to be a member here right? Baptism has nothing to do with membership in a local church. What it has to do with is is you being a follower of Jesus. Uh, If you're following Jesus, if you're a believer and you have not been baptized, I want to give you the invitation to simply obey Christ and be baptized this morning. The only requirement is that you have faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you became a believer this morning right here during the service. If you have become a believer in Christ, you have the opportunity to obey Christ by being baptized this morning. If you've already been baptized, even if you're not a believer, um, I encourage you to stay around and celebrate with us um, as we celebrate the faith of those who have become believers and wanted to uh, celebrate that through baptism. If you want to be baptized this morning, we're going to have some leaders at the back. Um, What we would ask you to do is simply go and talk to them after the service. We have them back there to pray with people, to talk to people. If you have questions about it, Go talk to them, and and they will help you discern whether or not you should be baptized here with us today, and and they'll give you instructions about how to do so if if that's what you desire, and we believe that that is, um, in fact, an accurate representation of your faith. 
If our sermon this morning, if the things that we've covered has stirred things up in your heart and you would like someone to pray with you and pray for you, over you, we have leaders in the back. They're there every week um, purely for the, for the goal of, of just coming alongside people and praying with them and praying for them. And so um, if you would like to have someone to pray with you, feel free to do that. If you're a guest with us, we would ask that you would fill out the worship response card that's in your bullet, and we'd love to know you were here. You can drop it in the response boxes by the door on your way out. Um, and don't forget that we do have a gift for you at Connection Point. You can simply stop by there. And um, if you have prayer requests, you can put them on there, and our leaders pray for those every week. All right, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into our time of response, and uh, we're going to share communion in a moment, but we'll explain that. Um, in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are the God of all comfort, that you do not um, leave us abandoned to our suffering. You don't inflict our suffering on us in some vengeful or um, capricious way. Everything you do is designed to invite us and equip us to come back into life. So I pray for my friends. I pray for those that are suffering, suffering the loss of, of maybe someone they love, maybe the loss of friendship, the nearness of someone who was like family, those who are experiencing sorrow, maybe simply because the brokenness of the human condition has echoed so deeply in their soul that it has produced within them a melancholy that they can't shake. Lord, we know that there is plenty of reason for sorrow, but because of your work, there is reason not to despair. And so I ask, Lord, that you will meet my friends in the place of their pain, giving them the emotional maturity to grieve well, to deal with their suffering in an honest and uh, real way, but not absent from or devoid or from your presence and your love. Father, I pray for my friends who you're calling to them right now, that you would soften their hearts, that you would enable them to receive grace, that they wouldn't harden their hearts in pride. They would humble themselves to meet their humble God. I pray for those that need to follow you in baptism, that you would move their hearts to obedience. Lord, we love you. Equip our hearts to love you more.